Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter number 8, we'll look down there, verse number 30, if you want to join me there, Romans chapter number 8, and excited about getting into this part of Romans and uh, continuing our look. If you'll notice there in your outline, we have a few extra, by the way. Brother Doug will make his way down the middle aisle, so if you need an outline, we'd love for you to be able to follow along and uh, see where Paul has taken us in this chapter thus far, and then also where he's going to take us tonight in our understanding of our salvation, the gift of God, not only in that salvation, but the Holy Spirit and all that he's given us and what he's promised us. And in our outline, if you'll notice it there in our outline, as we've come through verse number 30, I put at the top the there, just kind of a reflection, a remembering of where we have been in verses 14 through uh, verse 30 thus far, all the way encompassing verse 39. We have our little outline here. It introduces us to the Holy Spirit and some of the benefits, as we uh, labeled it that way, the benefits of the Holy Spirit there in verse 14, that spirit of adoption and so forth and so on. And so here are the things that through the Holy Spirit indwelling us that we have been blessed with in our salvation of being found in Christ. And so, Roman number one, the Spirit introduced us to that family life, that uh, spirit of adoption. Number two, the Spirit confirms our future glory. And there's a promise in this passage of that, uh, looking ahead that is exciting and full of promise and anticipation. We looked at Roman number three, the Spirit helps us with our present infirmities. And that uh, statement, very, uh, verse 26, the very familiar statement, likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Speaking of spiritual infirmities, we saw that in our study of that. And then we came to Roman numeral number four. The Spirit works according to God's forever plan. We finished this up last week as we delved into uh, that uh, verses 28 through verse 30 and talking about God's ultimate plan for each one of us and, and His foreknowledge that uh, did, uh, helped form His predestination and predetermination, the reality that you and I are justified, that we are called and part of the elect and God's perfect plan in that sense. And then Romans Roman numeral five, we gave you this a few weeks ago. Now we get to get into the meat of it. And uh, the Spirit promises that we will never fall from the ranks of the saved. And now from verse 31 on, we, we hit upon verse 31 just uh, minutely last week. And so now we get to get into the section that is full of several questions. We'll see that. But uh, can I just remind you last week, uh, sorry, uh, the saved there fall from the ranks of the saved. Can I just remind you of how we finished up last week? as we considered the, uh, the cohesiveness of God's sovereignty and the free will of man. And as we considered that last week, we came up with the statement here, beyond and above our daily choices, God is there at work. He is uh, in His sovereignty and in His omnipotence. Uh, he's making moves that cause our choices then in turn to conform to His perfect will. And uh, well, uh, then but thereby achieving His purpose and plan, as has been laid out in this passage, in our lives. And we uh, understood this great truth that God never violates a person's free will. He never contradicts it. He never goes against us. That you and I have a free will as much as anyone, as every person does in God's economy. And so crucial that we grasp that and understand that. Now, as we bring this section almost to a close, in a sense, we, we are, as we look at verses 31 to 39, as we bring it to a close, we kind of want to remind ourselves of 
what this is teaching us and the, shall we say, the, uh, the shared point of all of these uh, uh, Roman numerals uh, is this. It's, it focuses on the Holy Spirit. It's all tied to the gift of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you this. Okay? Think about this for a moment. I think this is apropos to our study in Romans chapter 8. What if for an instant, for a moment, you and I could go back in time, and we were time travelers, and we went to the time of Jesus Christ, and, and, and we had an opportunity to, to listen to Christ teach and, and speak, maybe to the multitudes, yay, for me, I, I would like to hear him when he's surrounded by his disciples, impart some of that knowledge we read and other things that aren't recorded for us. I, I'd love to hear that. And let's say that we were able to do that. We were able to sit at the feet of Jesus Christ for just a little bit. And then after that, you and I had some one-on-one time with Jesus Christ in that setting, in that day and age. And in that, we were able to interview him. And let's just say, perchance, we, we were there for that time that Christ spoke to his disciples about care and anxiety for life. In fact, uh, you might remember the passage where Christ alludes to In fact, he, he was t- teaching them about prayer. And he went on to prayer about, hey, uh, ask, and he said this, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. And knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and him that knocketh it shall be opened. And then he goes on, if you remember the context there, he's, uh, we would hear him speak. If you were sitting there listening, we would hear him talk about this. He said, now you human fathers out there, um, if your child asks you for bread, how many of you would give him a stone? Then he said, hey, if your child asks of you fish, how, how many of you would, would, would give to him a scorpion? How, how many, or a serpent, excuse me, a serpent. How many of you would give him a serpent? And he said, how many of you, if your, your son asked an egg of you, w- would you in turn give him a, a scorpion? And then he makes an a application, if we might put it this way. He says, listen, your God in heaven, he knows how to give good gifts. Both what you need as a child of God, but also sometimes what you ask for. Hence the description, the tying to prayer. Now, he says that, he explains that to the disciples, and let's just say you and I pull him aside, and we say, listen, hey, Christ, man, that was, that was a great little study, that was a great little uh, lecture, and man, just a lesson, a sermon, boy, we learned so much from it. Can I just ask you one more question? If you were to have to choose, because you just said that God in heaven, our Heavenly Father, gives us, knows how to give good gifts to us, Christ, if you had to choose one gift that was the best, that was the goodest. That's not a real word, but I like it, okay? That was the goodest gift. If you had to choose just one, what would that be, Christ? What would you say is, wow, that is the thing that blows your mind and blows you away, that God in heaven gives you this kind of gift? Wouldn't it be neat to ask Christ those kind of questions? Well, thankfully for us, the fact is this. In the passage... Christ answers that. Turn with me if you were to Luke chapter 11 and, and forgive me. I said Christ was talking about anxiety and care. That's not this passage. That's the next chapter. In fact, we'll get to that in a moment. Again, he was speaking more about prayer. But look with me in Luke chapter 11, if you will. Luke chapter 11. Notice that Christ then comes. This is a, uh, chapter 11, verses 9 and 10 is the ones I shared with you. But Luke chapter 9, now look with me, if you will, at verse number 13. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, 
how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? If Christ were to tell you and I today, what is the greatest gift you can get from God? Can, can I tell you? It would be this answer, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. You have it. You have the greatest gift that God could ever give. We sometimes think, well, it's just, I'm thankful for the Word of God. Great. The Word of God is a great gift from God. But Jesus Christ said the Holy Spirit is the great gift, the good gift that you and I are given. And that's literally what Paul is alluding to here. Here's the Spirit that Paul's writing about. The Spirit that is with you and I every step of the way. He is the Holy Spirit that does all these things we've studied in this passage for us, and He continues to do them. The fact is this, we have such a good and great gift from our Heavenly Father, and His constant presence and the constant help of the Holy Spirit is integral, it is vital to the fulfillment of verse 31 in our lives. Notice verse 31, save your spot here in Luke 11. We'll actually be back at Luke chapter 12 in just a moment. But in Romans chapter 8, look at verse 31. Here's, why, here's what the Spirit accomplishes. If you want to say the ultimate aspect or conclusion, uh, success story of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Verse 31, what shall we say to these then excuse me what shall we say shall we then say to these things if god be for us who can be against us we hit upon it we we alluded to it in last week but now we want to see that in these next few verses paul asks several questions five or six questions we'll kind of designate five of them per se the first question is encapsulated in this passage in this verse here's the question what is our response to these truths then the god's plan that all things work together for good the holy spirit helps us with our infirmities we're part of the family of god we have future glory that we've been promised through the Holy Spirit. So what is it that's supposed to be my logical response? That's literally what Paul's getting to. What shall we then say to these things? What's my response supposed to be? And these two questions in this verse really go together. Um, literally, the question he's asking is this. Shouldn't there be a logical conclusion of what has just been presented to us? If doctrinally we've been given all this truth and we've been fed the understanding of God's divine and heavenly plan, then you and I ought to arrive at a conclusion or a, conclu uh, a concluding response. Really, Paul's saying this, Will the God in heaven who has masterfully designed this plan not see it to its end? Is God in heaven going to allow something as insignificant as difficult circumstances at your work? A relationship with family that falters. Persecution or oppression in one form or another. Another type of crisis. Even a bad choice on your part. Will he allow that to interrupt and interfere with devastating consequences to the purpose and plan that he has for you? Do we think that God in heaven is so easily derailed in what he's trying to accomplish in your life and my life? Yes, our free will is there, there is no doubt, but I sure am glad that there is a God in heaven who has a plan for your life and for mine. There are things that he wants to accomplish, and my friend, he is not so easily deterred as some of, as some of us are. He is not so easily turned away. He is not so easily uh, frustrated in his designs as you and I sometimes are. And that's what Paul is alluding to here. 
Can he not handle anything? Is God going to be turned back in his plan for your life? To borrow a phrase from Paul, may I say this way, God forbid. God forbid. And that leads us really into uh, that second question is this. What, what or who can be against us? What or who can be against us? Now let's remind ourselves quickly the context of this passage, this letter. There is no doubt that Paul is writing this letter, and there on the horizon, it's clouded and it's darkened for the Christians of that day who are the first readers of this letter. That horizon is clouded and darkened by, by persecution of, uh, of the Romans, by oppression of the Jews uh, in their day. In fact, it's already begun to rain oppression and persecution and yet those storms are continuing to brew. And if you were out last Saturday, right, and you were able to look into the sky and it's all dark and boy, that storm just kind of, listen, when Paul writes this spiritually, there is a storm brewing. It's already start to rain, persecution and oppression. And those first folks that are reading this, he's writing this passage, don't miss it, to a beleaguered church and beleaguered Christians that need encouragement and hope. They need to know that all things are going to work together. When the Romans become into power and, and gain greater power and they start persecuting you and, and Nero says that your folks are the reason that, 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 that Rome was burned and, and boy, they start persecuting greater and greater and the Jews, they start oppressing these so-called Christians because of their claims that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Paul understood that they needed encouragement. And so here it is. Why would they need encouragement? The very same reason that you and I need encouragement on a daily basis. The very same reason that you and I need to be reminded of what this passage is teaching day in and day out of what God has said in heaven. Listen, I am still in control. I have a plan that I'm working. You can trust me. You see, my friend, we all face that temptation. In fact, it is very real. We are tempted to believe that somewhere along the way, God's plan has faltered for me. That somehow, and, and we may even think about our own bad choices, but you know what the truth of the matter is? You and I are going to make bad choices, but the good news is, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And my friend, His mercy and His grace is as powerful as anything that you and I have ever encountered. And my friend, here's the good news. His grace, His mercy can get you back on His plan. You know, we think of building projects and things and how they can get behind because of time and weather. Listen, you and I may be a little behind on the building project and what we ought to become in Jesus Christ, but our Heavenly Father is good at getting us back on the right timetable, getting us back on the right plane. And my friend, that's what Paul's encouraging us here. He's challenging us about this reality. And yet the fact is this, we are tempted to believe that God's plan has faltered. And that verse 28, back up there, where it says that all things work together for good to them that love God, who are the called according to a purpose, is just a feel-good promise that has little application to real life. And the fact is this, you and I have an adversary, we have an enemy that comes and tries to tempt us day in and day out. And he wants you and I to believe this simple thought. That such a promise as Romans 8.28 is irreconcilable with reality. That Romans 28, that all things are going to work together for your good and God's glory is irreconcilable. Aren't you thankful I made that a blank? So you could write that out. Isn't that a big, fun word to write? 
I should just pause and give you like five minutes. Okay, hopefully I spelled it right. Maybe I didn't. Hey, do you see what Satan does? In your life and in mine, he'll come and say, listen, boy, did you see what go, went wrong in your life this week? Do you see how that didn't work out? You say, listen, listen. Hey, that promise in Romans 8, chapter 8, and verse 20, that's not powerful. That's not true. That's not real. It is irreconcilable with your, the reality of your life. My friend, your, de- your enemy, the devil, is subtle. He's subtle. And he'll come after every single one of us to try to convince us of this truth. We face the same temptation, each one of us. In fact, it is a constant temptation for every believer. That God has forgotten about you. His plan is no longer effective in your life. You are so off that it's never going to work. And In fact, it's always been the case for those who would trust in and follow God down through the pages of history. Turn with me. Keep your spot here. I know we're turning to several passages tonight. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. Genesis is the book. 42 is the chapter, okay? Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. Join me there if you will. Genesis chapter 42. We go all the way back to the first book. Genesis chapter 42. Now, As we come to this chapter, and we come literally to the end of it in just a moment, the fact is this, we we, we come to the point in Jacob's life where life isn't very good. Okay, if you were Jacob, this is probably one of the lowest points of your life. In fact, if you think about what's transpiring this, he's already lost the wife that he loves the most. She's gone, dead. He's already lost the son that, that he loved the most. He, he, he's, in his mind, dead, gone. He'll never uh, have him again. One of his daughters has been terribly defiled already. Two of his other sons have, ha, have basically broken his heart by their actions and what they did. Then on top of that, famine is threatening his entire family. They don't have enough bread. They can't feed everybody. He's had to send his children, his sons, to other countries to try to find food. Then you add to this that now Simeon, his sons, have just come back, and Simeon was left in Egypt where he was a prisoner. That might constitute a pretty bad part of Jacob's life, amen? That's where he is. That's where this chapter is. And in fact, now, uh, to top it all off, there's this crazy guy down in Egypt who is the second in command under Pharaoh. And this is what he tells Jacob through his other sons. He says, listen, you need to send uh, your youngest son that's still alive, Benjamin. You need to send him down. And only then will I release Simeon, who was Benjamin. Well, Benjamin was the next in line after Joseph to take Jacob's favoritism. Benjamin was it. He was from the favorite wife. And so, boy, he, Jacob doesn't want to let go of this. And now, guess what? That's the demand of this crazy guy down in Egypt says, you need to send Benjamin. And then they've also found out some reasons why they think the Egyptians are going to think they're thieves and everything else. If you would say, in fact, if you were Jacob, this is probably what you would say. It's found in verse number 36. Notice it. Genesis chapter 42, verse number 36. Notice what he describes, and Jacob their father said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children? Joseph is not, Simeon is not, and ye will take Benjamin away. Now let's read the next statement together. All, everyone together, you will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. 
Who was winning right there? Satan. (laughs) All these things are against me. Now, isn't that interesting? You know where that goes right against? Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Even the promises that God in heaven had given to Jacob said, listen, Jacob, as I took care of Abraham, as I took care of Isaac, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to watch, watch over you and your family. All these things are against me. You, you ever say something like, well, I just give up. Life is too hard. Life is just against me. All these things are against me. Now listen, as we think about that statement, boy, what a statement it is. Aren't we tempted to say that sometimes? Don't we face great difficulties and oppression and disheartening situations in which we want to cry out, all these things are against me. But where is the faith in that statement? Where is the faith in the promise found in Romans chapter 8, verses 28, and even through verse 30, and certainly other passages aren't you glad that you know the rest of the story of jacob what do we know about this well it really does all work together for his good doesn't it because just a few verses later a couple chapters guess what happens jacob is down in egypt he has simeon back he has benjamin he's fine the family has food and joseph has been reunited with him And now, beyond that, the entire nation of Israel is going to have a place where they can be birthed and grow, and God can use them and bless them. And Jacob's, for generations to come, his family is going to be blessed by God, and everything's really going to work out good for Jacob. You and I know that. Jacob didn't know it right then. But could Jacob have known it? Yes, he could have. How? By faith. By faith. If he had had faith and he had had uh, the reality of trust in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, a promise that is found not just in Romans 8, but throughout the entire scriptures. If he had had faith, he could have said, you know what? I don't know how this is going to work out, but this one thing I do know, all things work together for good. To them that love God, who are the called according to his purpose. You know what's even more amazing about that? Is this truth. Did it work out for Jacob's good? Yes. But you know what it also worked out for? God's glory. Because in Egypt, what happens? Well, Israel becomes the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. Make, make many, many seed. I'm going to grow that nation, and, and I'm going to return it to a promised land. And from Egypt, they get to go to the promised land. Listen, my friend, in this story, the fact is this. Jacob says, oh, all these things are against me. God in heaven is saying what? This plan is coming together. This plan is coming together. Everything that I plan is just working out. Just a, and Jacob's there fretting and freaking out. Oh, Lord, I, this is, everything's against me. Everything's falling apart. You find yourself there, Christian? Can I tell you in your life that there's a God in heaven who in the moment that you and I are fretting and we're worrying and we're overly concerned over how things are working out, there's a God in heaven who's saying this, everything's working out just the way I planned. He's got a plan for you. It requires our faith and our trust. So take heart, Christian. Whether you're in the land of plenty or you're in the land of famine, the challenge for you and I is simple. We need to trust God's plan and purpose, and we need to rest in the promise. Trust His purpose and plan that has been laid out for us in verses 28 through 30, and then rest in that promise found therein. 
there's a logical conclusion. We trust God's plan and purpose. We rest in His promise. And as we trust and rest it, literally he's saying, okay, we ought to come to this conclusion. What shall we say about these things, Paul says? That's the question. And his conclusion, the first one is this. God's plan and purposes will be accomplished and nothing will thwart their success. Nothing is going to, when you and I buy into God's plan, we say we're going to trust and have faith, boy, God is going to work His plan. He is faithful to complete it in you and I. That's His promise throughout the entire Scriptures, especially here in the New Testament. So trust the plan and rest in the promise. And yet, there's another conclusion here, and I love this verse. I love it how Paul stuck it in. Look at verse 32. Notice it. Uh, Notice this other conclusion that we derive from where he's at. So we're in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Notice the statement here. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Could have easily made this another question, but I did not because I think it runs together with the prior truth here. Here's a line of reasoning that Paul employs and, and, and it's not altogether different than the reasoning that Jesus Christ himself used in teaching God's care for people. This is what I alluded to earlier. I'm sorry, I mixed up Luke 11 and 12. But in Luke chapter 12, God is speaking to his disciples, and he's speaking of God's care for his people, his children. And what's interesting about that, do you remember that as he's teaching his disciples about worry and, and fretting, remember he says this, take no thought for your life what you will eat and how you will be clothed. That, that's the, the general uh, just of the, or the general idea of the, the passage, okay? So he's speaking to the disciples about that thought. And in doing that, you remember what he does? He, he says, okay, now think about it. He, he says this. He goes, okay, let's look at creation for a second. In fact, let's not just look at creation. Let's look at some of the most insignificant parts of creation. Some of the lesser creations of uh, the, the creator. Look at the ravens. Despicable bird, a despised bird, a, a bird as we have seen even before in messages, worthless to the common person uh, and, and of no value And Christ says, what happens to the raven? Well, God feeds them. He provides for them. Then he says this, look look, look at the simple plants. Simple plants that really are so insignificant. In fact, they're not just insignificant, they're temporary. In fact, look at the lilies. That, that they're not, they may be in a field today and they may wither tomorrow. They'll hardly be there. And yet, how beautiful is the lily? How beautiful is such a flower? And God dresses that lily. He, he makes it beautiful. And, and not just in creation, but he also allows the, the rain to feed it and the nutrients of the soil and the sun to shine upon it. And the fact is this, God cares about that lily. Even though it is, its life is short-lived, it will soon be gone. God grows it. He clothes it, as Christ said in that passage. You see, Christ moves from the lesser to the greater in his statements. And after looking at those two lesser parts of creation, you know what he does? He looks at his disciples. He says this, how much more greater are you than the fowls of the earth? If he clothed the lily, how much more will he clothe you? 
And I love this statement, don't miss, and I think to me it is the apex of the passage in, in Luke chapter 12. And you can turn over there, you can look up this way, Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Notice what he says, Christ says, fear not, little flock, sheep, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And isn't that a great statement? Hey, listen, hey, ravens, yeah, despicable, ugly, nasty birds, God takes care of them. Lilies, temporary, not going to be here long, and yet they're beautiful. Why does God waste his energy and his time creating something so beautiful that's not going to last very long? Because God is God. And my friend, if he'll do that, you can be guaranteed that he's going to take care of you. And then Christ says beyond that, it is God in heaven's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. Now, isn't that amazing? He wants to give you his kingdom. I'll tell you, I am a loving father, I think. I love my children, and I will do anything for them. I really will. You know, but sometimes I can be a little selfish. You ever have kids that always ask for what you have? Oh, you have a Dr. Pepper? I want some. Can I have a drink? I do not want your snotty little lips and face all over my... You ever have those little, you know, those moments of, you know, I'm a little selfish. I'm going to hold back for myself. Maybe I'm the only one here. Okay, anyway. Uh, you know, I just, you just, I don't want to, you know, that's us. Can I tell you, there is not a selfish bone in God in heaven if he has bones. But you understand what I mean. He's not like you and I. It is his, what? Good pleasure to give. Man, I sure am thankful for our God, aren't you? His good pleasure to give. Now, what is this teaching us? Listen, he, he is using the reasoning, and you probably already guessed it, a lesser to greater reasoning. Okay? And Paul was doing the same thing in this passage that Christ employed. See, in this passage in Romans 8, what does he say? Hey, God in heaven, now don't miss this. This is so just like Luke chapter 12. He says this, God in heaven has already given you the greatest gift you could ever imagine. He has already not spared his own son in delivering you from your sins and paying the ultimate penalty and cost for the sin that was rightfully yours. He already did that. And God did that, and he gave us his best. Now, don't miss it. He gave us his best when you and I didn't even trust in him. He gave us his best when we despised him. When the fact is, we, we were strangers to God. We were very, shall we put it this way, we were less to him because we were enemies, right? The Bible says it, enmity with God. That's who we are. If we're sinners and we haven't put our faith and trust in Christ, and yet Christ died for us. We weren't even a part of the family. We could say we were less in his eyes. And yet, Jesus Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that He gave. Now, if while you and I were sinners, estranged from God, a creation that rebelled against the Creator, and in that moment, He did not spare the greatest, best, the goodest gift that could be given... 
what do you think he's going to do for you when you're one of his children? See, you see what Paul's doing here? Paul says, listen, when we were the least, God gave us the greatest gift that could ever be given. Do you not think for a second that if he will do that when you and I are the least, now when we are part of the family, when we are the children of God, when we have an intimate relationship with him, in a sense we are greater spiritually and are standing in Christ, don't you think your God in heaven is going to give you good gifts? Can't you trust him that he's going to work all things out together for your good? If while you were a vile, wicked sinner estranged from him, he was still working things out, and the reality is now that you are a child of God, you and I can trust him. I love this passage. You see, it's not God operating and doling out good things on the basis of the law or our merit. There is no earning, okay, well, God's going to make things work together for good if I just do this and I just do this. No, no, no. This is God in all His graciousness. In fact, may I put it this way? It is Calvary grace flowing throughout our lives. For by grace are you saved through faith. And my friend, I sure am thankful that the well of grace did not run empty after Calvary that it flows through our lives. And the fact is this, day in and day out, that grace is flowing in your life and mine. It is flowing in amazing amounts to help you and I to see God's plan and purpose achieved in our lives. Literally, we could say it this way. He was over-the-top gracious in what he did on Calvary, and he's going to be over-the-top gracious in what he does every day for us. That's our God. He, he loves you that much. He, you, are, you mean that much to him. And if he did not spare his own son, if he did not spare his own son, how shall he not with him also, what? Freely give him all things or give us all things. See, the verse keeps getting better. You see those two words there that freely give? They're derived from a single Greek word in our manuscript, and you see it there, charismai is the word. Well, you can maybe immediately guess where that word comes from. It comes from charis, right? Not charis quick, but charis the Greek word, okay? And, and what, does that, what does charis mean? How does it translate? It's grace, right? It's grace. And we see that throughout the Scriptures. And so what he's saying, freely give, he is what? God is gracious, but it also adds something to it because this is the middle voice and everything else. Literally, and forgive the, the use of words here, but literally, you know what it means? It means this. He is gratuitously, that's a fun word. He is gratuitously gracious. He is above and beyond, overwhelming, beyond your comprehension and mine. He is gratuitous, gratuitously, excuse me, gracious. What does that mean? Frank, can I tell you? You can't even measure the grace that God affords you. It is beyond our comprehension. It is freely given. You say, whoa, whoa, can't I earn his grace? No, his grace is freely given. It's freely given. He's not going to hold anything back from you and me. The hard work has already been done. The greatest sacrifice and gift has already been given back at Calvary when we were nothing. 
Do you really think that now He's going to hold back something from us now when we are something in Christ? We are His children. That's what Paul says. And you and I are in such a great position tonight in our faith in Christ. Let me give you another illustration. We'll be done. What, 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 let's say that much as I might find myself in someday, let's say that the, a, a father is coming to the, the, the wedding day, the time for the marriage of his only daughter. Okay? We can all imagine, and, and some of us dread that, and some of us have already gone through that, and, and uh, the fact is you dread that. I mean, that is going to be one of the hardest times, and I joke with Reagan, you know, uh, the, the, her age of marriageability keeps moving, you know, from 25 to 30 to 35, and uh, pretty soon it'll be at 50. But anyway, um, so that marriageability, right? Okay, it keeps moving. Because, man, that's, you just imagine, that'd be so hard, and I, I dread the thought of it. I don't like thinking about, maybe you're wrong, it's bittersweet, isn't it? Can we not be honest? It's bittersweet. As you do that, as a father, you walk that, that daughter down the aisle and, and uh, you know, you've already had those conversations with the guy, you know, listen, you touch her, you're dead. Uh, you know, those kind of conversations, you know, you don't take care of her, uh, we'll see each other in a less friendly way. Uh, you know, those kind of things, you've already had the conversation, and yet when you come down the aisle, what are you doing? What are we, how do we describe it? Well, who will give this lady to be this man's wife? Literally, we describe it as what? To give her hand in marriage. Now, let's be honest, that has to be a hard thing. I dread the thought. Many of you fathers have gone through it, and that has to be a difficult thing to do. Now, listen to me. If a father does that, and he gives away his daughter's hand in marriage and things, let's say that a few days later, after the honeymoon and things like that, the daughter says, uh, comes and says, Dad, we need some furniture. Hey, I had this in my room back there. Could we just have that furniture? Let me ask you this. You think that dad's like, no, haven't I given enough? I mean, I gave you away. Now, think about it. In comparison, what's the big deal of giving some old furniture from a room to giving a dollar away? It's not. He wouldn't have a big deal. There'd be no problem with that. Why in the world would we think he'd quibble over that? He's just gone through the most difficult part. Can I tell you, my friend, Paul is looking at you and I. He says, listen, why would you doubt that God is going to freely give to you on a daily basis if he's already given you eternal life through Jesus Christ his son? If he's already given you life, why do you and I fret and worry and get concerned that, oh, this isn't going to work out? This little problem here and this financial issue here, this relational issue here and, and this thing here, man, this, I, I don't know how, it's all against me. Paul looks at you and I, and obviously through the leading of the Holy Spirit, says, listen, you and I have the Holy Spirit, the greatest gift that can be given. And my friend, he's just a down payment on all the good gifts that come freely from the hand of God. Why do we fret and we worry? See, it's interesting. You know, when Jesus Christ came to a conclusion of teaching about that fret and that worry and that he just talked to his disciples about the lily and the raven. Now listen to me, don't miss this, because here's where he comes to the conclusion. This is the conclusion that Paul's getting to later on in the book of Romans. You know what Jesus' conclusion is? He says this, if that's God's care for you, you ought to take no thought for your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. God's going to take care of those things. He comes to this concluding admonition, this exhortation, this challenge for you and I, and he says this, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto thee. Added unto you. Hey, my little sheep, your loving Father in heaven, it is His good pleasure 
to give you of his kingdom. So what shall we say then, Paul says? Here's what we ought to say. You realize that my job, my focus, is to seek God's kingdom now. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. You know what else? Here's the fact. If that's my focus, you know what God said? His focus, caring for his children. Caring for his children. Now, can I challenge you? Think about that for a moment. I sure am glad that God took over the care of me, the care of you. Aren't you? Aren't you thankful that he said, okay, listen, hey, 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 I'll take care. You don't have to worry about this life and getting through and and working everything out for your good and and the best possible outcome and conclusion. No, no, no. You don't have to worry about that because I'll tell you this. There's been times in my life that I tried to work things out. I've made a mess. Amen? We've made a mess. I'm glad that God said, no, 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 you step back. Let me take care of it. You just trust me because I have a perfect plan. All things are going to work together. And then here's the amazing thing. God looks at us. He goes, okay, now I want you to take care of my kingdom. <laughs> Wait a second, God. Do you know <laughs> Me? Take care of your kingdom? Yeah. You want to choose me, our hands? You want to use us as your vessels, your ambassadors to further your kingdom? Yeah. All right. I hope you know what you're doing. <laughs> God, I hope you understand whose hands you're putting it into. And God says, oh, no, no. You just trust my perfect plan. You trust the Holy Spirit that I've given you. And what does the Bible say? I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. So my friend, uh, from my perspective, you and I have gotten a good deal. God's gotten the raw deal. But here's the reality of it. With God, all things are good. And he'll use you and me as we're faithful and trust him. He's going to use us to achieve his kingdom to fulfill his goal and his plan. And at the same time, you and I can trust him to take care of us. I've said it often in our study of Romans. Boy, we have it good, don't we, Christian?